0: Hello, this is Esther Prevel, and for the next hour I'll be reading from the May 27th issue of the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. And on to our first article. AI will revolutionize the way we work. Here's how to adapt and protect your livelihood according to experts. In the coming years, artificial intelligence is expected to have far-reaching impacts across almost every job sector with some experts likening its arrival to the invention of the internet or electricity. For workers in white collar professions considered first in line to be automated by generative AI, concerns over job losses are running high. That said, some experts say we now have a tremendous opportunity to embrace technology early on and get ahead of the pack. Generative AI has developed at a blistering pace over the last few months, the release of blockbuster programs like ChatGPT or Midjourney means robots can already draft essays in seconds, ace the bar exam, generate near photorealistic images, and much more. Yet AI is far from perfect. ChatGPT is prone to hallucinations, for example, when it confidently presents false information as fact, and is known to manufacture fake news stories or scientific studies so given the speed the technology is advancing and how some major companies are already adapting experts say that now is the time to act what can humans do better than ai for now ai's abilities are mostly cognitive that means the skilled trades and manual careers like plumbers and electricians are likely safe for now as long as the work isn't repetitive like with factory workers As robotics technology catches up to AI, however, this might change. According to Avi Goldfarb, the Rotman Chair in Artificial Intelligence at the University of Toronto, generative AI is a predictive tool. It reacts and produces content based on its vast training database, but can't generate new ideas by itself. It excels at what it can do, but is unlikely to surpass humans in many other areas like creativity and innovation. It's partly why. He and other experts believe AI is unlikely to outright replace humans, but rather augment our abilities. For one, it's missing our judgment, he said. You can imagine a generative model like ChatGPT writing an article. But you, the journalist, would still have to design the prompts to decide what you want. You still have to look at the article after the fact to decide if it was what you're looking for, Gopfarr continued. That requires human skills, like knowing what's valuable. Joel Blitz, an associate professor studying AI and economics of innovation at the University of Waterloo, added that humans are far better at interpersonal skills than AI. As much as AI is able to chat with people and seem like a person, I still think it's going to fall a little bit short, especially if we're talking face to face. Things like oral communications, the ability to talk, things like empathy I think all of that is relatively safe, he continued. How can we use AI in our work? According to Viet Vu, manager of economic research at the Dice at Toronto's Metropolitan University, we're still years away from AI being widely adopted commercially. His team's research shows that just two to four percent of Canadian companies have adopted AI in recent years, and he doesn't anticipate that figure to change much in the immediate future. But in the longer term, it's very much important to learn how to use AI. He said, and now is the perfect time to do it. At the end of the day, AI is just another technological tool that to be effective, we need to know how to use it and also how not to use it. The good news is that current AI programs are very accessible to the public. You can actually understand all of the current program's limits, all of its capabilities, without actually knowing how to code, View said. Although you'll unlikely be required to use AI for work just yet, there are still many ways to boost your productivity with current programs, said Maura Grossman, a professor of computer science at the University of Waterloo. You can use ChatGPT to brainstorm ideas or to write early drafts, so long as you verify the facts, Grossman said. Meanwhile, image, music, and text generation technology allow people to bolster their own skills in areas that they're lacking. You can have one of these tools generate 50 different logos that capture the essence of my business. For example, she said, I may have very little talent in physically drawing things, but I can describe what it is that I want. Meanwhile, Blit sees AI as being a gold mine for entrepreneurs and business owners. All of these technologies are resulting in making it much easier and faster to launch whatever idea you're thinking of doing, he said. Now that you have an assistant that can help you throughout the marketing campaign, that can help you do all sorts of different tasks, he said which may allow smaller teams to launch ambitious projects faster and cheaper. What skills should we be investing in? According to Goldfarb, regardless of your job, the skills that allow you to succeed in your job today will be different from the skills you need to succeed in your job 10 years from now. While it's impossible to predict exactly what skills we need in the future, Goldfarb predicts because of AI there will be a continual change and need to adapt to what new things the technology can do. As such he says it's vital to learn how to learn and to keep an open mind that said goldfarb recommends learning at least basic statistics to get a leg up when dealing with ai models because of ai's ability to turn out vast amounts of misinformation and deep fakes with many such instances already going viral and reaching millions grossman added media literacy and ability to smell falsehoods will become vital these skills will also be crucial for fact-checking the products of ChatGPT and other language models. Among the most important skills to have, according to Blit, are entrepreneurial skills, having an innovative mindset, and being willing and able to be an agent of change. As has happened with every new disruptive technology, from the steam engine to electricity to the internet, industries first adopted bits of technology before being wholly reinvented. Blit said. Think retail stores, setting up websites before the entire industry was disrupted by Amazon, a fully online store. That means new, disruptive companies are bound to spring up that reinvent the way we do things using AI." Flint continued, We're still in the early stages of the technology, and we now have a once in a lifetime opportunity to create something revolutionary. AI is empowering everyday humans to do way more stuff than they ever could before, he said. So, the people that have the ideas and the drive and the ambition and the ability to think about challenges as opportunities, this is made for them. How can students entering the workforce prepare while the skills we need for work will likely look very different a decade from now? The core skills we gain in ability, the core skills we gain in university, namely the ability to effectively learn, will still prove invaluable. Goldfarb said that said. Goldfarb recommended becoming proficient in statistics and mathematics to get a leg up when dealing with AI models. Despite AI's fast knowledge, Wu says people with deeper expertise in a particular field will have an edge over people who don't. Prior knowledge will help you better interact with AI on certain topics, allowing you to ask better questions and better interpret the results. Other than encouraging an entrepreneurial outlook, Blitz said that students should be getting familiar with AI and its recent developments. Don't bury your head in the sand, adopt AI, make sure that you are at the cutting edge. This is a tool like every other tool that humans have ever developed, he said. So fundamentally, yes, it's partly human replacing, but it's also human enhancing. Will AI Save Canada? Over the past few decades, Canada's prosperity has slipped dramatically. Going from the third most prosperous nation in the world in nineteen sixty seven to the fifteenth today. That means unless we address it, our kids are going to be worse off than kids in poor countries, Blitz said. Fortunately, as we are now in the early days of AI adoption, Canadians have a chance to create a disruptive to create a disruptive product and come out on top of this new technology. Although this will require coordination and investment by individuals, companies, and policymakers, but continued, the Canadian government has invested a great deal into AI research and development, including giving a nearly $200 million to UFT, its largest ever grant given to a university, to study AI and automation. On the other hand, Canadian industries are notoriously slow to adapt to new technologies, we noted. We're not even talking about AI adoption, even from the standpoint of general technological and digital adoption, Canada has really been lagging behind competitors like the US, UK, or other places in Europe, he said. That means despite coming out with cutting-edge research, we really struggle with commercializing it and propagating it through the economy, he said. Canadian companies will need to make dramatic shifts to capitalize on AI, and the government will need to encourage change, or we'll be left in the dust. Adopting AI in a meaningful way will benefit the Canadian economy. It will benefit our productivity, which has been lacking for many, many years now, we said. But we need to be able to connect all of our amazing talent with a mainstream adoption of the technology. And on to our next article. Heather Schofield, The mortgage stress test was controversial when it launched, but now it's time to admit it blunted the pain. It was such a big deal at that time, way back in 2016, when the federal government imposed a stress test on future home buyers. The two percentage point buffer was the subject of controversy. The two percent, the two percent, percentage point buffer was the subject of controversy and much lobbying in the name of affordability and improving access to real estate. It seems so mild in hindsight. The stress test, of course, was meant to ensure borrowers could reliably handle higher payments if rates were ever to rise. At the time, critics, especially those in the real estate sector, it complained that the stringency of the test was overkill. Fast forward to now, with rates having risen 4.25 percentage points over the space of 15 months, and we could allow that the stress test has blunted the pain. The policy was very useful, Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem said last week. It helps households right now to be more resilient as their interest rates rise. But it seems like a small buffer indeed in the face of the extra payments so many homeowners will soon be paying as they turn over their mortgages. The Bank of Canada flagged this week that due to its rate hikes, monthly payments will rise by 20-40% to in the next few months. And yet Toronto home prices have climbed for the past three months in a row defying the odds as demand outstrips supply and making us all wonder how such market conditions could possibly be sustainable. It doesn't help. It doesn't help that households in Canada are more indebted than in any other G7 country, with homeowners mortgages responsible for three quarters of that debt, according to the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corp. It's just the latest example of policy tools and government tweaks that pale in comparison to the challenges that come flying at us. As the Canadian economy strains to adapt to a churning world where every new twist and turn is supersized, predicting the amplitude of the next challenge is a mugs game, and calibrating government policy to match is even trickier. Recent history shows that this is still this is the case. When the pandemic stifled the global economy as we know it, the policy response in Canada was fairly traditional at first. But as the enormity of the pandemic hit, the federal government quickly and dramatically bulked up the emergency benefits for individuals, businesses, and organizations to the point where we are still perplexed over the after effects. Higher savings, higher deficits, and higher prices are the tool that the pandemic and its responses are still taking on the Canadian economy have yet to wrestle inflation down. Inflation which surged around the world was met slowly at first with timid rate hikes. By the time central bankers realized inflation was intransigent they had to drive rates up rapidly historically fast and they yet have to wrestle inflation to the ground. When Russia invaded Ukraine, Canada and its allies have imposed round after round of increasingly stringent sanctions and creative attempts to alienate Russia from the global economy, but Russia seems impervious and keeps on fighting. And when it comes to government support for cutting emissions and pushing energy production towards low carbon, some subsidies, especially around electric vehicle, production have been larger than life. It's still too soon to say if all that money will succeed in unlocking the investment that's required to build the new infrastructure that takes us to net zero emissions by 2050. We are in a confusing time of compounding crises and interconnected challenges that it's become cliché to describe them as such, but we're still discovering. Super-sized crises are necessarily are not necessarily resolved by supersized policy responses. And so it's worth remembering and appreciating that some of the policy basics that hold the economy together over time, even the face of turmoil. As countries around the world, including Canada, search for ways to become more resilient in face of all the turmoil, we shouldn't forget that efficient and predictable regulation paves the way for companies to invest with confidence and stay competitive for the long term. A solid set of rules for approving infrastructure and natural resource development, for example, is not nearly as spectacular as a big pile of subsidies with all the attendant ribbon cutting. But if the goal is to unleash private sector investment, we know that streamlined regulation that encourages collaboration with the private sector stands the test of time and supports economic growth. So does a calm, steady eye on the fiscal tract, Predictability in government spending, a responsible approach to deficits, and transparency in budgeting are the keys to public confidence in the government's ability to solve the big problems when they arise. In the past, Canada's sensible shoes approach to managing the economy has stood the country's economy in good stead, which is easy to ignore given the challenges before us. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Negro Frontier Radio Reading Service. Housing market dynamics and household indebtedness are particularly precarious right now. Many market holders have a bit more time to figure out their finances before higher payments come due, as Bank of Montreal senior economist Robert Kavkik noticed this week, and governments are looking hard to find ways to curb speculation and increase the supply of housing at the same time. Stitching together sensible solutions seems to be our best hope for finding balance for now, despite the supersized risks on our hands. And on to our next article. David Olive, working from home is here to stay. Here's how to make it work for everyone. The current workplace transition, often described as Revolutionary is framed as a tug-of-war between work from home and return to the office. But that's a false dichotomy. Fixating on where employees work is missing the point. The point is the long-simmering worker dissatisfaction unleashed at the end of the pandemic, sometimes called the Great Resignation. What's common to work from home, return to office, and the hybrid workplaces is continued managerial deficiency in nurturing the employee satisfaction that boosts productivity what we've got here is failure to communicate regardless of where they work employees report a lack of clarity on what is expected of them starved of positive reinforcement starved of positive reinforcement they feel out of the loop In their return to office advice to managers in the Harvard Business Review, management experts Constance Derricks and Gloria Clark suggest that offering specific sincere praise is a powerful way to allay employees' concerns about whether you or other colleagues remember the value they bring. Many employees suffer a lack of respect from both managers and certain coworkers. Those energy drainers make work difficult or even toxic with their abusive language gossip, and shunning of fellow employees. Failure to remove such people or to upskill them in decency amounts for the morale-sapping distrust evident in most workplaces. The manager's job hasn't changed in this new era. It is to prove management guru Peter Drucker wrong when he said so that so much of what we call management consists of making it difficult for people to work. Work from home is here to stay. The time savings in commuting alone are simply too compelling for employees to ignore. The pandemic revealed what a colossal waste of time and disruption commuting in America is. New York fund manager Barry Rithowitz wrote recently on his popular blog, The Big Picture. And work from home benefited the many employees that posted significant gains in productivity and profits during the peak years of the work from home pandemic. But work from home also risks social isolation, and lack of boundaries around work. And so, traditional offices in Toronto have already won back about 50% of their pre-pandemic populations. That's a respectable number, given that we are only 14 months removed from the last COVID-19 wave. Studies have consistently shown that traditional office workers have a better chance at promotion, at upgrading their skills through in-person teamwork and more mentoring off opportunities than their work from home counterparts. Psychological safety is a thing. No longer the exclusive realm of industrial psychologists, maintaining a workplace free of harm is now a widely shared responsibility, though it needs leaders to create and sustain. A psychologically safe workplace is one where it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to not be okay and it's okay to speak up and disagree with a superior or other members of your team said Dana Lee Bagley and Shannon M. Grant of Dalhousie University and Mount St. Vincent University respectively in a recent workplace report. Rates of burnout, quitting and job hopping have all hit record levels in the post-pandemic economy. Those factors and not work from home have reduced productivity growth rates to historic lows. Long-term fixes for that worker discontent include more experiments with four day work weeks and closing the gender pay gap. In Ontario, Ontario, women on average are paid just 87 cents on every dollar earned by men for comparable work, according to a report this month by the Financial Accountability Office of Ontario. We needn't wait for those remedies to get started now on improvements to working life. A healthy workplace. In a healthy workplace, managers measure outputs, especially work well done. For now though, managers are mistakenly obsessed with inputs like hours worked and emails sent that only encourages performance work, the mere appearance of working. In ideal offices, respectful managers extend to employees the kind of autonomy they had while working from home. Offices are equipped with discrete lounges for impromptu employee chats and timeouts from the stress. There is an employer-provided psychologist available for both return to office and work from home employees. And there are office events, including guest speakers, panel discussions, and celebrations. Events enliven office life and draw work from home employees into the office. Those methods promote employee engagement or commitment to the job. Engagement is a key to productivity gains. Gallup, the polling firm, estimates that below average employee engagement cost employers worldwide $7.8 trillion in 2022 a sum equal to about 7% of global GDP. The most successful employers use constant feedback to promptly identify problems and opportunities. Organizations could reach their highest level of productivity ever if they have managers who are upskilled to have the right kinds of ongoing conversations with people so that they're in touch with them on a regular basis, says Jill Harter, Chief Scientist of Workplace Management at Gallup. What has been lost so far in the workplace transition is a focus on basic basic questions do you value your job and does your employer value you and on to our next article sean mikhailiff the undeniable doug ford factor in the toronto election doug ford will be in the polling booth with us in june he looms over this toronto election casting a shadow on every promise and proclamation any candidate makes because Canadian provinces have an incredible power, financially and otherwise, over municipal matters. While most Ontario Premiers have taken a relatively hands-off approach to meddling in urban affairs beyond what they fund, Ford has bucked what political scientists call a convention, an unwritten practice, in this case leaving cities alone, and instead has taken a peculiarly keen interest in Toronto details. After his government announced a dissolution of Peel Region last week, eventually eliminating the regional government overseeing Mississauga, Brampton, and Caledon, he said his phone was ringing off the hook from other mayors asking for their independence. With no sense of irony or shame, he went on to say, everyone wants to call their own shots and I don't disagree with them, and that maybe goes back to my roots on city council. I always hated upper-tier governments dictating here, there or the other thing. We are there to fund them, but they have to make decisions themselves. There are surely a few hundred people who ran for 47 council seats in 2018, scratching their heads in a confusion, recalling that Ford unilaterally cut Toronto's wards down to 25 in the middle of a democratic election that they put their lives on pause in order to run. It's instructive to remember that and reflect on how fragile local local democracy is, but also to know who Toronto is dealing with. Though he's an incredibly powerful premier of a province of nearly $15 Ford ran for mayor in 2014 and remains interested in Toronto in a way he isn't with other municipalities. Many jokes have been made that Ford still wants to be mayor, but his behaviour suggests there is something to that, as he can't seem to resist the urge to meddle. After saying he was going to stay out of the surprise election, he threw his informal support behind former police chief Mark Saunders, who Ford has employed as his advisor on Ontario Place to the tune of up to 171500 a year. As the many debates unfold, every candidate is talking about negotiating with the province for a better deal for Toronto and that they're the one who can do that best. Ideally, it would be absurd to have to grapple with this kind of routine intergovernmental negotiation in any unique in any unique or cautionary fashion. It's how Canada works after all, but there's a track record of volatility. In Ford's approach to Toronto, that suggests he isn't always acting in the spirit of good faith negotiation here. On a recent Star This Matters podcast, host and colleague Ed Keenan made the point that suggests he isn't always acting in the spirit of good faith negotiation here. On a recent Star This Matters podcast, so if he couldn't get a better deal for Toronto, why do these other would-be mayors think they can do better? Tory was also the guy who gave the strong mayor powers, to, so he was as much of an amenable negotiating partner as the Premier might desire. That brings up another question. If Ford doesn't like the mayor Torontonians elect, will he retract those strong powers? One example of a hypothetical negotiation is Anna Bailiao, who has repeatedly said she would upload the Gardner Expressway, something that Ford has said no to, and one that would trigger municipalities to mend the same, presumably ringing his phone off the hook again. Uploading is in vogue these days, though. When Mississauga mayor Bonnie Crombie began exploring a bid for the Ontario Liberal leadership. She asked if health and child care, as well as dental programs, should be another level of government's responsibility. The better deals for Toronto seems like a long shot. A municipal Hail Mary pass that nobody wants to catch yet it's become so commonplace for governments and politicians to play this jurisdictional game in order to avoid doing something themselves in Toronto's case. We need a better deal but we could also raise some of our own money with increased taxes as other nearby municipalities offer higher rates with higher rates have for it is as much a part of this election as the 102 people on the ballot and voters will need to think about how each candidate will deal with that in a recent debate saunders said you get more bees with honey than with salt On Twitter, York University environmental studies professor and bee researcher Sheila Kalla pointed out that bees make their own honey and are actually attracted to salt. Given Ford's mercurial nature, the question of salt or honey might depend on both the issue and on his mood. So choose a candidate who can do both and also create the popular momentum Ford might listen to. As for getting our own city hall in order, it might be wise to also look to candidates who are ready for Toronto to start making its own honey money. And on to our next article. Why are so many condo elevators out of service? Experts say just four companies control most of the market and oversight is poor. To this day, Isabel Kammer still can't take an elevator alone. It's a bit of a joke in her office. But to her, what she experienced that day in her condo building was anything but. She remembers leaving the unit on the sixth floor Stopping and in, stepping into the elevator with a fellow resident and pressing the button to the main lobby, the elevator began to descend. Then a sudden drop, and they stopped moving. She pressed the emergency button, but wasn't given a clear direction from the building staff on what to do or how to get out. Eventually, she was told that someone would come and rescue them, but there was no word on how long it would take. My phone had no signal. But luckily, the other person I was with had some reception, she said. I managed to call my husband. When her husband reached the front desk, he put pressure on staff to come up with a plan. She told him the elevator mechanic had been called and would come as soon as possible. I was really scared because the elevator felt unstable, Connor said. I remember I was hyperventilating. Cameras is part of an ever-growing number of condo dwellers in Toronto who face a daily challenge when trying to enter and exit their buildings. Elevators that malfunction or don't function at all. There are many reasons, aging condo stock, a lack of elevator mechanics due to ongoing labour shortage, condo boards that fail to maintain elevators properly. But increasingly, elevators, experts and politicians are pointing their fingers at oversight of the near monopoly that exists when it comes to elevator installation and repair in Toronto. Just four major companies build 90% of elevators in Ontario and they maintain more than half of them, limiting competition. These four companies build the elevators in such a way that only they can supply many of the parts to repair them. And sometimes those parts come from overseas resulting in long wait times. As a result, Large numbers of condo residents are finding themselves out of breath and frustrated as they hike the stairs, climbing as many as 20, 30 or 40 floors to get home, while the elderly and those with disabilities can find themselves held prisoner in their units for days at a time. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The situation became so dire that in 2018, the Auditor General launched an investigation and found large elevator companies are the primary cause for worsening elevator safety after failing to maintain elevators for years. Every year since the report, about 80% of elevators have failed. The regulatory safety inspections and the number of reported incidents such as doors closing on people have almost doubled, shooting to 637 in 2022 to 382 in 2013. Since the Auditor General's investigation, little progress has been made by the regulator, industry experts say, and the problem is becoming increasingly, and the problem is just becoming increasingly urgent as more Toronto residents rely on elevators to leave and enter their homes. The city is set to put a record of 25,000 condominium units in 2023, with an additional 100,000 units set to be completed between 2024 and 2028. Meanwhile, condos are getting taller, with new builds averaging with new builds averaging 25 stories, up from 16 stories before 2000, according to research firm Urbanation. The elevator malfunction that Chalmers injured was so traumatic, it helped lead to the couple's decision to leave the building. They felt they simply couldn't trust the elevators anymore. I could have handled it better, but I really wasn't doing well in there, she said. Her husband eventually called 911 to get a faster response, which the front desk said they wouldn't do because of the cost, she said. Condo management did not respond to the star's request for comment on the incident. Some 30 minutes later, the fire department arrived and got both residents out after they'd spent more than an hour trapped inside the steel box. I've never had a phobia before, but now I have one, Tomer said. We moved to a house and it's a massive relief just taking the stairs. Agency slammed for poor oversight. Elevator outages and delays have been an issue in Ontario for more than a decade. By 2017, the issue had become so problematic. The provincial government asked the Technical Standards and Safety Authority, the TSSA, a regulatory authority that enforces public safety, to commission an independent report on elevator availability. The study was completed by the Hon J. Douglas Cunningham, who provided a number of recommendations, including addressing the elevator mechanic labor shortage creating standards for elevator repair timelines and collecting data on elevator outages to be made publicly available. A year later, Auditor General Bonnie Lissix investigated the TSSA and slammed the agency for poor oversight. At that time, the report found that most elevators were not in compliance with safety laws and the situation was getting worse. In 2018, just over 80% of elevators failed their TSSA inspections and that failure rate has remained the same every year since. According to TSSA spokesperson Alexandra Campbell, a failed exp- inspection isn't necessarily a serious offense. A non-compliant inspection means that an elevator could have just one infarction that's considered low risk, such as a signature missing in a maintain- maintenance logbook. The TSSA also points out that non-permanent injuries have declined by almost half from 2013 to 2022 however more minor incidents such as tripping because the elevator isn't leveling properly with the building floor or doors just closing on people have risen by 40 percent during the same time there are many mechanisms in place to make sure that people feel safe and comfortable campbell said very few elevators pose a safety risk and the TSSA does routine inspections on many devices Worsening elevator safety. A key finding from the Auditor General report revealed that elevator companies are the primary cause for worsening elevator safety, and for years have not maintained most of Ontario's operating elevators in accordance with safety laws. In many cases, the companies maintain, in many cases, the companies maintain and install devices, the report says. In Ontario, four major international elevator companies maintain more than half of the market. This and Krupp maintains about 25% of the elevators Otis and Coney each maintain 11%, and Schlinder maintain 7.5%. According to the TSSA, to win market share, these companies offer services at reduced rates, which in turn creates incentives for them to minimize time and effort dedicated to maintaining or fixing elevators, the report said. In addition, condo owners find it too costly to take legal action against large maintenance companies that don't fix elevators in a timely manner. They also find it difficult to switch between maintenance companies due to ironclad contracts and elevator systems that require the use of proprietary technology. Typically, condos must sign long-term contracts with the installation company to maintain elevators, as the equipment is highly sophisticated. After 10 years, the building owners can then hire an independent contractor to service the elevators. The building's owners typically stay within the initial construction company because it takes time for third-party vendors to provide the parts to independent contractors. Isabel said that's why after 10 years, you can make the switch outside of the construction company. The lifespan of an elevator is around 20 to 25 years, meaning that buildings are often stuck with the elevator construction company to maintain the elevator for a half of its lifespan. The four major international players play into proprietary components, meaning that only the company makes that part, which in turn means only they can service it, limiting competition, said Phil State president of Canadian Elevator Contractors Association. Because of this, it can take months for elevators to be fixed if certain parts are manufactured overseas. Elspeth Chalmers, Isabel Chalmers' sister, was member of a condo board for a year during the pandemic and saw firsthand how one of the major elevator companies responded to maintenance issues in her building. The building was two elevators and either one can be out of service every other day. They never came with any of the necessary parts to address the issue and when they needed a certain part it would take weeks for it to come, she said. One time it took up to two months. On average it would take the company five business days five business days to respond to the building management service calls, she said. Switching to another maintenance company wasn't possible because the building was in a long-term contract with the company. But even so, we weren't confident we could get better service with a different company. Because so many of our residents said they had horrible experiences with their elevators at previous condos, she said. While some elevator parts might be difficult to acquire, around 85% of the parts needed on a day-to-day basis are readily available in U.S. warehouses, Isabel said. The remaining 15% is harder to supply due to their advanced technology, he added. The star reached out to the four elevator companies to find out how many elevators they service a year and what their standard response time is and how many parts need to be shipped from overseas for competitive reasons we do not disclose a majority of the information required that said globally otis maintains approximately 2.2 million customer units, which is the industry's largest service portfolio. Otis said in an email statement, adding, elevator services are designed to deliver maximum uptime and safe, comfortable rides. Chester Bailey, spokesperson for Thurston Comp Elevator, says its goal is to provide excellent service to all our customers and that all emergency calls are prioritized. In fact, we offer the largest provider network in ontario most of our replacement parts are available within canada and north america and we maintain a substantial inventory of parts in our distribution center in toronto she said in a statement Coney and schilder did not respond to the star backlog of upgrades there are many other reasons why fixing elevators takes so long in addition to the delays in procuring parts from the four major companies, experts say. we're Running into a similar labor shortage to the one we experienced back in 2019, said KJA Consultants Isabel, adding that it's especially difficult to find enough workers for downtown Toronto, as many elevator mechanics prefer to live outside the city where it's more affordable. Often elevator companies assign one mechanic to 30 residential buildings, whereas for commercial real estate, one mechanic is assigned to two or three buildings, said Murray Johnson, director of the Canadian Condominium Institute, a nonprofit organization dealing exclusively with condominium issues. If an elevator stops working in a commercial building, there are significant economic repercussions, as workers can't get to their office and access to retail is hindered, he said. Commercial landlords just pay extra for tech maintenance and pass along those fees to their tenants, Johnson said. If Connell's were to run like a commercial enterprise, You wouldn't be able to afford to live in one. Many elevators in the city are also old and haven't been upgraded. If an elevator has been in use for 40 years, some parts are no longer available, said the Canadian Elevator Contractors Association state. Elevator modernization can now take up to 12 weeks, he said. If the parts aren't available, contractors tell building owners that what what they need to be doing to upgrade the system, but it's up to the condo owners to proceed with the work. During the pandemic, upgrading the electrical and mechanical parts as well as the controller, the brains of the machine, to new technology, which is smarter and more reliable, was put on the back burner, creating a backlog of upgrades to be added at the mercy of the market. Two years after the 2018 Auditor General report, Lisick followed up with the TSSA for a progress report and found that 18 out of 25 recommendations had been fully implemented. In 2022, the TSSA, 2022, the TSSA did not report the inspection compliance rate for each elevator company in Ontario, a report which still needs to be made. She told the Star, but overall, the TSSA has a high implementation rate, and is ensuring elevators are being maintained within the regulatory framework, she said. Going forward, the TSSA will be grouping inspection orders into three categories, low risk, medium risk and high risk. Each category will have a set time frame in which to be addressed. Some high risk orders such as elevator doors closing too quickly and exerting too much force will result in the immediate shutdown of the elevator until the issue is fixed. Low-risk infractions such as a signature missing from a logbook will be reviewed at the next periodic inspection the TSSA's Campbell said. This would be more similar to the Toronto restaurant inspections where there is a red restaurant order to close until issues are rectified, yellow requiring time to comply with order and a follow-up by a health inspector, or green, a pass that may still list some findings, she said. It's important to note that the TSSA identified just eight high-risk elevators in Ontario in 2022, Campbell added. But other industry experts say that not much has changed since the report for repair. Since the report for repair times, as the four main companies still have a stronghold on the market, and the pandemic created a backlog of elevator fixes, a supply chain issue and labor shortages. If you're living on one of the top floors of a condo building, you're not seeing any difference, Johnson said. If an elevator elevator has been down for three weeks, I get the frustration, but we're at the mercy of the elevator market. Possible way forward. In 2007, the European Commission fined Otis, Cohen, Schlinder and Thyssen Krupp 992 million euros for operating cartels for the installation and maintenance of lifts and escalators and upholding restrictive business practices in select countries. Large fines here in Ontario could create better checks and balances on the elevators companies, experts say. The 2018 Auditor General's report noted that the Ontario's Ministry of Government and Consumer Services now known as the Ministry of Public and Business Service Delivery, is responsible for overseeing the TSSA and gave the agency additional powers to issue fines. But details on the size of the fines were not released at that time. On July 1, 2022, the government approved changes that allow the TSSA to issue fines to contractors license holders for non-compliance with safety laws, but the fines only range as high as $5,000 depending on the issue. Furthermore, the TSSA has yet to issue a single penalty, Campbell said. That's because more data needs to be collected on elevator maintenance, which he says is underway. Last summer, the TSSA launched an online tool that allows condo owners to report when an elevator has been out of service for 48 hours or more. So far, almost 300 elevator incidents have been reported, with one elevator report to be out of service more than three months. TSSA plans to implement monetary penalties in the future for lack of maintenance on an elevator, which is contributing cost to elevator outages and delays," Campbell said. For Chalmers, being stuck in an elevator for an hour is an experience she can't shake off. For a period of time, she has to attend exposure therapy, where she was shown photos elevators to become less fearful. I work at a building on Bay and Bloor, and to this day, I have to get someone from work to come down and ride it with me. I know it might seem ridiculous, but it's really triggered something in me and has completely changed aspects of my life. And on to our next article. You are listening to a reading of articles and features on the Toronto Star on Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Origins Air Purifier uses genetically modified houseplants to clean the air you breathe and costs $10,000 a pop. At the heart of every Origin air purification system is one of the most common houseplants of any college campus. Pothos Ivy. Buried within its genome is a haiku, a botanical version of the tiny polar bear mark laser engraved into Canadian diamond to tell them apart from counterfeits. This trademark, seemingly ripped straight from Gantaka, protects Origin Air's genetically modified plant, a creation it says can strip household chemicals out of the air we breathe. In 1989, a NASA study erroneously claimed common houseplants could efficiently consume household toxins, but Origin Air co-founder and CEO Susan Blanchett says their company's system actually does the trick and has the scientific evidence to back it up. It also successfully landed two funding rounds to the tune of roughly $1.2 million. For $10,000 a pop, the Origin Air Pinnacle model can clean up to 8,000 cubic feet of air. Commercial tenants like Bentall Green Oak, Hudson Pacific Properties, and JLL all use Origin Air Systems to keep their air clean. It isn't exactly cheap, but the company says it has more models in the works to address dirty air, the next frontier of healthy environments, thanks to the pandemic and increasing awareness of air pollution. It's kind of like water quality in the 90s, Blanchett explains. We all thought water was just great, and then all of a sudden the testing results started to come out, and now everyone likes filtered water. Blanchett spoke to Star from Victoria. You're a lawyer with BC Attorney General for 13 years, and worked in real estate for 3 years. What made you decide to start a company like Orgineer? I love the practice of law in the beginning. I practice in the environmental space, on contaminated sites, and riparian rights. And that's what I love. My first degree was partly in environmental studies, and my dad was diagnosed with dementia at 51. He was a simple engineer designing wastewater treatment plants, notoriously bad air quality. With my contaminated sites background, I knew it had to have been some combination of factors, including air quality. But proving negligence with respect to with respect to toxic environment as a litigator is practically it's pretty much impossible. You can't prove it unless there are very specific facts. It is so much easier to go the other way and remove the toxins in the first place. But I think that was the beginning of my realization that I had always been an entrepreneur. Even as a small kid, I used to kidnap all of the neighborhood dogs and cats and run a vet clinic in my garage. I started a soccer school when my boys were 10 to 14 years old. Then I started doing real estate on the side while practicing law. It was just a natural progression, and I wanted to do something positive. So, how do Origins air filters work? What we've done is combine traditional air purification, that worrying plastic thing in your corner, it has a MERV or a HEPA filter and removes a particulate matter with our plants. Our plants are our secret sauce. That's what we do differently. I negotiated with the University of Washington for the rights to the plants. In the beginning, we had ex- we had co-exclusive rights because universities like to give like to give to more than one company, but we were able to renegotiate, and now we have exclusive global rights to these plants. But what's special about them is that they have liver enzyme encoded into their genome, the same as your liver or my liver. Our plant's metabolize toxins. They are proved the plant's efficacy in laboratories at the University of Washington. They're removing 82% of the benzene present in the air, 100% of chloroform. They can also remove formaldehyde and acrylene, which is the off-gassing from carpets, glues, paints. Volatile organic compounds are gases, so they pass through traditional air purifiers. That's what we've done with the multi-barrier approach. We take out large particles first, then the gaseous, small gaseous particles second, and then we combine it with an air sensor to tell you how much we're improving your air quality. What did it take to convince University of Washington to give these plans to you? I think that's where the Laura skills came in. The university had published an article about the plants that we saw. And then I wrote to them and threw our hat in the ring. They asked for a full proposal and we negotiated for a few months. And then we were successful alongside one other company. Luckily for us, the other company discontinued and we renegotiated to get the global rights. I think a lot of people assume that, I think a lot of people assume that most pollutants are outdoors. What do you say to people who think the indoors are safer or less polluting? It's funny that you say that. It's completely known that volatile organic compounds cause disease over time and yet you can still go buy products with them. I have three adult entrenched sons. One of them showed up with a body spray that's got toxins in it. They're not good for you to breathe. And humans bring in a lot of volatile organic components. When you're indoors, where is the air coming from? First, it's coming from outside the building. There are cars going by. You're breathing in that exhaust. It's going through the HVAC system. As I said at the beginning, benzene passes right through an HVAC system. We did a study in Vancouver, which many people claim as the best air in the world. My pre-filters, my HEPA and MERV filters were all pitch black in two months in every machine. So we just can't see it. Was it during wildfire season? No, it wasn't. And this was in an LED platinum building with the best HVAC system you can get. And you can see the air problem, air quality problem more in Southeast Asia, which is why we found patents over there. People there are more aware of the problem and it is definitely a problem in Canada as well. In New Delhi every year, they shut down the entire city to all trucks in November because the air pollution is so bad. When Indonesia does its burning, the smoke just flies over Singapore for a month at a time. I don't know if you saw the recent pictures from Calgary, but it started to happen here more and more frequently and earlier every year. Do you ever see yourself producing a product to handle wildfire smoke? So, the pre-filters we take out that particulate matter, which is smoke. They filter out the material. So definitely, it is for wildfires. And then our plants to work on the gaseous compounds that pass through the volatile organic compounds as well. It's definitely for both. You were on Dragon's Den. How do you think that contributed to Origin's air visibility? The way it works on Dragon's is you apply early in the year. We applied at the very beginning. We would raise maybe half far round. By the time we found we've already raised 95%. So I was stuck in a position to offer a very minimal amount of funding because that's all we had left. I offered them 1%. I pissed the dragons off completely. I think it was the lowest amount ever offered to the dragons in the history of Dragon's Den. But the whole point was to get that product out there on TV. Also, I'm a real champion of not only my investors, I'm not going to give the dragons a better deal than the people who've invested in my company, but also of entrepreneurs. In doing these funding, two funding rounds, I've learned there are a lot of sharks out there in the angel investment community. They want 20% of your company for nothing. And as soon as most of these investors at the Dragons find that I'm a lawyer, they kind of quietly walk away because they know they're not going to out-negotiate me and get a bigger piece of the pie than they should. I'm not a young entrepreneur. I've been around the block. I can stand up for myself and make sure I'm getting the best deals. But a lot of people just starting out could get taken advantage of. So I want to flip the script a little bit and say, no, stick up for yourself. And if you don't want the investment, then don't take it. What makes your units $10,000 each? Well, first off, they're expensive to build, and the plants are unique, and they're very expensive to grow still. As we move into the future, I'm sure our costs will go down. We are working on redesign right now with a third-party manufacturing company, where we'll be able to get some of the building costs down. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 27th issue of the Toronto Star. Your reader has been Esther Provo. Thank you for listening.